Welcome. My name is Caleb, and you are listening to the Vitamin C Podcast. Oh boy. I definitely have stuff to say today, but I really don't know where to start. And I don't really know how long I'm going to talk about this movie because walking out of the theater, I had this feeling that I sometimes have when I walk out of blockbusters where I say, I could see myself ranting about this one for like an hour and then fighting in the editing room to cut it down to 45, 50 minutes, which is not always easy to do, but sometimes the episode's just too long and I rant too much. And I felt that I would possibly do that with this movie. So I think I'm going to jump right into it, not say anything else beforehand about any other movie news, even though there's a lot going on right now. I'm just going to ignore all that stuff and just talk about Indiana Jones. So, fun fact about the Indiana Jones franchise. It's largely recognized today as a Steven Spielberg franchise, when in fact it is created by George Lucas and directed by Steven Spielberg, but they worked closely together as collaborators on these first four films. It's kind of crazy because you basically have two of the greatest blockbuster directors in history that collabed on these movies. I really don't even know what I would compare that to today. But basically, you had George Lucas, who was at the top of his game. You know, he had Star Wars, and then Spielberg went on to create tons of great stuff throughout the years. But yeah, this franchise is something he gets a lot of credit for, rightfully so. He was the director of all of the first four movies, and they're great blockbuster films. They really are. They feature a fantastic character in Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford, and part of it is just that Harrison Ford is great. I've never seen Harrison Ford in a movie where I said, oh man, His character is boring because he just naturally crushes it on screen, no matter how poorly written a role might be. Like, for example, Star Wars The Force Awakens. I don't feel he gets a lot to do in that movie, and I feel like the way he's written isn't really consistent with who Han Solo is as a character, or at least where you last saw Han Solo as a character. But Harrison Ford is still great in that movie, and he might have been phoning it in for all I know, but he still does a great job, and you still like Han Solo. Heck, even in Anchorman 2, Harrison Ford is great. He's not even in the movie very much. He has maybe five minutes of screen time, but he delivers one of my favorite jokes in the entire movie in his first scene. So he's just a great actor and was the perfect lead man, and you see that so much in Hollywood today that there are tons of actors that They'll star in a big blockbuster movie, and then they say, yes, this is the new lead man, and they try to put him as the lead man in other blockbusters, and it just doesn't work out. Chris Pratt, for example, was a hit in Guardians of the Galaxy, so they said, okay, let's put him as the lead man in every single blockbuster. They put him in Jurassic World, they had the movie Passengers, they had the movie The Tomorrow War, and there are probably a couple I'm forgetting. Oh, The Magnificent Seven? And it's not that any of those movies are bad, it's just that when people think Chris Pratt, they still think of Guardians of the Galaxy or Parks and Recreation. They don't really think of any of these other roles. Whereas for Harrison Ford, you could think of him as either Indiana Jones or Han Solo, that's how much he owns both of those roles. That's just how iconic those roles are. And then he's also played some other stellar characters throughout the years, but those are his two that... I think will live on the very longest, largely because they're still milking those franchises that he was involved in. 
But yeah, I just see it all the time in Hollywood where there's a new guy and they say, yeah, this is the new lead man. And sure enough, they're not. Even Chris Pine, he was Captain Kirk in Star Trek. Then they started to put him in a few other projects as the lead man. Like they tried to relaunch the Jack Ryan franchise with him as the lead. And it didn't really work out. Not really his fault, but at the same time, it's just evidence that there's nobody quite like Harrison Ford. So they were really cooking something special with that Indiana Jones franchise because you had Harrison Ford in his prime. You had Steven Spielberg at the very start of his career. And you had George Lucas at his peak as well, arguably. And I'll tell you what, they are some fantastic blockbuster movies. I used to watch them all the time as a kid. I thought they were a lot of fun. They were fun for all ages because even though there was some stuff in there that was a little bit scary or maybe a little bit too violent for kids, largely it was a fun franchise for everybody. Now, when I was younger, I really only watched Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Last Crusade because my parents didn't like Temple of Doom. And to this day, I've only seen Temple of Doom in pieces. I've never actually watched it in its entirety, which is maybe a little bit embarrassing to say, seeing as I'm talking about the newest Indiana Jones. But then later, it was when I was maybe around 12 years old, around there, that Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out. And I remember seeing that and loving it. I was like, oh, this movie's awesome. And part of the reason I loved it is because another example, by the way, of someone trying to force a new lead man was Shia LaBeouf. And it was because Shia LaBeouf was in Transformers. And that movie was a hit. It was a huge hit. And then they started casting Shia LaBeouf in all of these lead roles. Or in this case, they put him in Indiana Jones kind of to, I think, take the reins if they decided to do another movie where Harrison Ford would still be involved, but be able to take more of a backseat to this now younger actor who's supposedly his son. But the thing is, most people didn't really like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I didn't really get as a kid because I loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun. And I've grown up and there are a few things that maybe don't entirely work in the movie, but I still think it's a fun blockbuster film. And that's just the thing with Steven Spielberg, man. He really doesn't miss. And when he does miss, it's like, yeah, it's a miss in that it's not a 10 out of 10 movie, but it's still fun. And there are not many directors like that. There are some directors that are hit or miss. Their hits are really great. And their misses are just terrible. But in the case of Steven Spielberg, I think his bad movies are still pretty good. The ones that are considered his bad movies are still pretty good. Like off the top of my head, his worst reviewed movies are probably Temple of Doom, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and The Lost World, Jurassic Park. And those are all pretty fun movies. Like I said, Temple of Doom, I haven't watched in its entirety. But from what I've seen of it, it's pretty fun. And I think I maybe did watch it all when I was really young and just don't remember it all. But as an adult, I've only seen it in pieces. And everything I've seen, I'm like, this is pretty good. I don't know. But the thing is, The Last Crusade kind of served as a perfect end to the Indiana Jones franchise. Like it was a perfect send off to the character. And then years later, they did Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which serves as, I guess, a legacy sequel before legacy sequels were really a thing, before everyone was making legacy sequels to everything. Like, they made a legacy sequel to Ghostbusters, man. <laughs> but I think Kingdom of the Crystal Skull also does a good job at wrapping up Indiana Jones' story arc, because I think The Last Crusade wraps up his character arc pretty well. 
But then Kingdom of the Crystal Skull kind of introduces a new thing that Indy doesn't have in his life. He doesn't have a special woman in his life. He doesn't have a family or really anything that'll live on after he dies. And that movie gives him that and provides some closure for maybe Indiana Jones fans that always saw him on these adventures with different women throughout the movies, but never settled down with anybody. Well, this one lets him settle down with somebody and be happy. So again, I thought that was a good conclusion to the Indiana Jones character. And then, you know, fast forward enough years, and now Disney owns the rights to Lucasfilm, and Disney was like, yeah, we're going to do another Indiana Jones movie. Who's going to direct it? Not Steven Spielberg. And I really don't even know if they had contacted Steven Spielberg. They might say they did. They might say they didn't. I don't know. But that should have been the first red flag for me. When this is a franchise that was produced entirely by George Lucas, directed entirely by Steven Spielberg, and now they were doing a fifth movie where both of these guys, mind you, are still alive. It's not like Lucas and Spielberg are dead or retired. I guess Lucas doesn't really do much anymore, but Spielberg is definitely not retired. That man is still working. He's a busy man. But I was thinking, you couldn't even get him as a producer on this. He's an executive producer, but that's kind of a in-name only title because it's him and Lucas's franchise. They both serve as executive producers, which means they do nothing, but they profit off of the movie. But yeah, they didn't even have Spielberg in an actual producer's role on set or anything like that. And so that should have been a bit of a red flag for me. Now, granted, there was Blade Runner 2049, which Ridley Scott served as a producer on because Ridley Scott directed the original Blade Runner. But Denny Villeneuve basically asked Ridley Scott not to be on set for the movie eventually because he's like, hey, you're like my favorite director ever. Blade Runner is one of my favorite movies ever. It's way too much pressure to make this movie with you on set. And Ridley Scott understood. He's like, yeah, I get it. Make your own movie. And when you know, Denny Villeneuve really cooked with Blade Runner 2049. It's a great movie. But with this one, all I could think of was, man, they got a good director. It's James Mangold, who has done some really good movies. He has the film 310 to Yuma. I still have not seen it. It's supposed to be very good. He has Walk the Line. It's the Johnny Cash story with Joaquin Phoenix. Again, haven't seen it. It's supposed to be very good. Then he did Ford v. Ferrari, which is a fantastic movie. He did The Wolverine, which is largely pretty good. The third act is outright not good. You can tell it was reshot last minute that they couldn't really figure out what they were doing with the third act because it's completely different than the rest of the movie. And it's really just a 15-minute stretch in that movie because 90% of that movie is great. And it's that 10%, that like 15 minutes towards the end that just does not fit and ruins the entire movie for me. I would still say it's like a 7 out of 10 movie, but it hurts that's a 7 out of 10, and it should have been like a 9 out of 10 movie. And then he did Logan, which a lot of people love Logan, and I think it's pretty good. It's kind of slow, but the third act is solid. It's a good send-off to the Wolverine character. But yeah, overall, James Mangold is a good director. So when I saw that he was doing Indiana Jones 5, I said, oh, well, that's kind of right up his alley. This is the perfect type of movie for him. And I think a big reason they got him was because he did Logan, where they said, oh, well, Logan is about an aged out Wolverine who's kind of on his last mission, saving the world for the last time, more or less. And so you could do something similar with Indiana Jones, where it's kind of the last ride for Indy. 
So that alone gave me a lot of confidence in the movie. But then I saw there were all these reports of extensive reshoots with this movie. And James Mangold was arguing with people on Twitter about saying, no, no reshoots. You know what you're talking about. And I remember him insulting people and all that stuff. And I thought, man, this is not great behavior when you have a movie coming out in like a year. I just really hate seeing directors getting into back and forths on Twitter with random users. It's one thing if it's a publication, put something out that's false and you say untrue and leave it at that. But when you're going back and forth and like insulting people, it almost comes off as too defensive and almost desperate. Where it's like, does somebody have a gun to your head? Are you forced to argue with everyone right now to try and dispel this supposed misinformation? Because it's actually just making me think that some of this stuff might be a little bit true. But I don't know. I tried not to think too much of it because I said, nah, Mangold's a great director. There's no way this movie's having extensive reshoots, even though that has happened on one of his previous movies in The Wolverine, which was a big budget movie. And then I saw the budget of this movie was $295 million. Guys, that is a ridiculous amount of money. That is insane money. The average blockbuster is maybe in the $150 million range, but the biggest blockbusters are $200 million to $250. This one was $295 million for the budget. It's one of the most expensive movies I've ever seen. I think The Flash had a budget not too different than that. And it was because The Flash had so many writers over the years and they did have to reshoot the movie a bunch throughout the years because there were different regime changes during production of the film where they kept having to change certain aspects of the movie because the universe around it kept changing where they said, oh, well, the ending has to be this now. Oh, well, you can't have this character anymore. Oh, well, the ending has to have this character. So I understand why that budget was bloated, but it's still not usually a good sign when a movie supposedly has reshoots and the budget's super bloated because I said, okay, If there were no reshoots, then why'd this movie cost $295 million? Because it doesn't really show up on screen. It looks expensive, but it doesn't look $295 million expensive. Anyway, later on, I saw that this movie screened at a film festival, and it did not come out to great reviews. And people are saying that it was messy, that it felt like a waste, and almost like a cash grab, and a number of other things were being said about it. And I still didn't want to believe it even though the trailers to the movie straight up did not look good to me. I kept seeing things and I thought, this feels like somebody trying to make an Indiana Jones movie. And it's cool they got Harrison Ford, but it just didn't look very good. Either way, I determined I was going to give it a shot opening day, as I always do. So I saw it in IMAX, which is a good format to see a movie like this. And the opening scene features a younger Indiana Jones on a quest to retrieve some artifact. And they use this de-aging technology on Indy. And at first I thought, oh, that actually looks really good because I'd heard people say it didn't look good. And I thought, that actually looks really good. And then the more it sat on the shot and they shine a light in his face, I thought, oh yeah, okay, that doesn't look that good. Like it's not bad when he's in motion or when it's lower light. But when the light was right in his face, I thought, okay, yeah, he kind of looks like a very well-designed, well-detailed video game character. You know how you could play a video game today and during a cutscene, it'll look almost real because they use like the face tracking technology or whatever for an actual actor for the video game they did. Yeah, that was kind of what it looked like, where it looked like they did that for a video game. So Luckily, it doesn't sit on that shot of just his face for too long, but there ends up being this huge opening scene 
where Indy's captured and then his buddy, who is Toby Jones's character, gets captured. And they're both on this train with a bunch of Nazis and Indy has to break loose and try and find this artifact and then find Toby Jones and then get off of this train. And so there's a huge action set piece to open this movie on this train, which interestingly enough, James Mangold in the movie The Wolverine has a huge action set piece on a train. I thought, wow, it's weird that happened twice, right? But I think this opening, it's probably a good 20 minutes long at least. And I think it's a really solid opening. It feels very Indiana Jones to me. So right away, I was thinking, okay, yeah, this is good. This is good. And then the movie kind of just for the next hour ends up jumping from action set piece to action set piece. And it all feels very Indiana Jonesy. Like it plays out like a typical Indiana Jones set piece where there are brutal deaths for the random henchmen and villains and stuff. Like when they're fighting on a train, a guy will get hit by like something that's going overhead or a guy will fall off the train and hit something or a guy gets blown up, set on fire, all that kind of stuff where it's as violent as you can get it for a PG-13 family movie while still making the audience go, oh. So they had a lot of that. And so I kept thinking, this all feels kind of Indiana Jonesy, but something just feels so off to me. And the whole time I couldn't place it, it just felt so off. Even though largely I'm like, this is pretty decent. I don't really know what's wrong here, but there's something that just doesn't feel right to me. And there are a few other characters that are introduced early in this film. And one is Mads Mikkelsen, who's in the opening scene of the movie. He's playing this Nazi scientist. And fact is, Mads Mikkelsen is just a great actor. And I think he's really good in this movie, too. He does a solid job. He's really good in everything, but he's especially good in this film. And then he's got his henchmen with him, which first off, in the opening scene, there's a Nazi colonel who's played by Thomas Kretschmann, who's an actor that I happen to like. He really is not anyone that people would know unless I said his name and you looked him up on IMDb and then watched those movies that he was in and said, oh, that's the guy. But he is like really solid as being a German villain anytime he's in a movie. And I think there's a movie where he's not German, but he still has an accent, maybe Swedish or something like that but I was happy to see him in the movie. Then there's a guy named Olivier Ritkers, who's just gigantic. He just plays this huge henchman, doesn't have a name. He's just the really big guy in the movie, which I said, okay, once again, they got that. The Indiana Jones movies always have a huge henchman at some point in the movie. And then there was Boyd Holbrook, who was like the main henchman in the movie. And Boyd Holbrook is a really good actor. I like him a lot. And I was excited to see him in this movie. I saw him a bit in the trailers. But he doesn't really do much in this film. Like he's always there. He's an important character, but he doesn't get a lot of dialogue and doesn't really have much to do. By the end, I really thought, man, he must have really just wanted to be in an Indiana Jones movie because he didn't really give anything in this movie. He was just in it. And he's in it for almost the entire ride. But I was like, man, he gets nothing to do. And he's also worked with James Mangold before because he's the villain in the movie Logan. So maybe that's part of the reason he did it. And I bet the paycheck was good because it's Disney. But he doesn't get a ton to do. Then you got Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is supposed to be the daughter of Toby Jones's character from the beginning of the movie. And here's why that's a little bit hard to believe for me. So Toby Jones is a great actor and he was perfect for the role that he was playing in this opening of the movie. But he's not the perfect actor if he's playing the father of Phoebe Waller-Bridge, okay? And here's why. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is almost like six feet tall. She's very tall for a woman. 
And Toby Jones is like five feet tall. I honestly, not even trying to be mean, I thought he was a little person when I first saw him. And then I looked it up and he's not. He's just a really short guy, but he's like five feet tall. So I was like, okay, so this guy's five feet tall and his daughter's almost six feet tall. How does that work? That was like a thing. They look nothing alike. Their personalities are nothing alike and their physiques are nothing alike. So I'm just thinking, is she adopted? Where did this girl come from? But whatever, that's a really nitpicky thing. So I won't dwell on that one. But that was the first thought I had when she said that was her father. I went, really? Him? But here's the thing about Phoebe Waller-Bridge is that she's very funny. She's very charismatic. She's a great actor. But I didn't really like her character for most of this movie. And it's because her and this other character, it's this kid who I'll look up his name in a second, but let me make my point first. But her and this kid are on this adventure with Indiana Jones, which first off, I hate kids in movies because largely directors do not know how to direct them at all. They're afraid to give them criticism, I think. And a lot of times these kids suck ass at acting, which I'll talk about more later. But yeah, her character and the kid kind of just dump on Indy the whole movie, just treat him like some bum, like he's dumb, and they're always like trying to screw him over and stuff. So I just have no reason to like these characters. Even if she's a charismatic character and is witty and smart and all that, for me, I'm just like, yeah, but you're disrespecting my goat, my boy, Indiana Jones. Like, don't disrespect my boy. I can't like your character if you're disrespecting my boy. And in her case, it's like, wait a minute. Indy's her godfather and was best friends with her own father. So you got to show the man some respect. And she has some reasons to resent him for sure because he was not really present in her life, especially after her father passed away, which I don't even know how he dies, but he dies. So I get that. But at the same time, it's like, hey, you can't make me like this character when they are actively not nice to the character that I came to see in this film. So that was one thing where I just said, yeah, I don't know. I get being a little sarcastic or kind of dishing back some of indie stuff in his face, but it just felt like too much at times where it's like, you're just dumping on this old man at this point who really is being roped into something that he doesn't even want to be involved in. You got him caught up in your mess and you're still treating him like this. Like they massively screw him over in this movie. And when I say massively, I mean, he gets framed for murder. Okay. And he's kind of upset about it. And it's like, oh man, why is this old man so upset? Well, I don't know. Maybe because he got framed for murder and he's like 80 years old and you're bringing him on this globetrotting adventure to try and find some artifact. And he's having to fight Nazis and jump from car to car and go deep sea diving and all this crazy stuff. Also, you can get something that you can sell on the black market. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, yes, every reason to be upset. And your character's actively screwing over my character. So even if your character is played well, I just don't like the character. Which, speaking of him being framed for murder, yeah, he straight up gets framed for murder. Not that it was intentionally set up for him to be framed, but that was just how it worked out where it looked like he did it, even though he definitely didn't kill anybody. But that's when he's about to start his journey to find Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is on the run. And he tasks his old buddy, Sala, who's John Reese davies character, who's Man Ray from SpongeBob or Gimli from Lord of the Rings. But he has him help him get out of his situation, sort of. But he basically just drops him off at the airport. And then you just see him go and get on a plane and fly to where he needs to go. 
I'm like, wait, this guy's wanted for murder. I know like pre 9-11 TSA was not really doing too much. They weren't like looking inside your asshole and stuff like they do now. But at the same time, you're telling me that a man wanted for murder was able to just pull up in a taxi and then walk onto his flight and fly out of the country. Like there wasn't a single system in place for them to say, hey, wait a minute, this guy's a wanted fugitive. His name rang up when we scanned his visa. Like there was nothing in their system to alert them of that. But again, being nitpicky, I just thought that where I went, really? That's crazy. But yeah, they end up going on this big Indiana Jones style adventure. And like I said, it feels a lot like an Indiana Jones movie, especially for the first two acts, like how it plays out. It feels like that. But one of my biggest issues is just that the action set pieces feel like that. And they're shot well. But the thing is, they're being shot by James Mangold, who's a good director. And the original franchise was shot by Steven Spielberg, produced by George Lucas, who are two of the greatest of all time. Steven Spielberg, when it comes to blockbuster movies, he might be the greatest blockbuster director in history. I mean, you look at his movies and just ask yourself, who else was doing it like him? Because you got Indiana Jones, the whole franchise, you got Jaws, you got Jurassic Park. He produced Back to the Future. Then you've got his War of the Worlds movie, The Minority Report. Then he produced the Transformers movies. And so this guy not only has directed some all-timer blockbuster movies, but he's also produced some of the biggest ones ever, some of the biggest moneymakers ever. So you're just not going to really outdo Spielberg with that type of action because a lot of it, it just felt like they were trying to replicate the type of stuff that Spielberg did. And to me, it was just, okay, you either needed Spielberg to do this movie or you needed to just make this your own Indiana Jones story. And instead, it kind of just feels like they were trying to make a Spielberg-esque story. And that's why it felt like it wasn't quite right to me. Because James Mangold's movies, at least like Logan, Ford v. Ferrari, and I imagine Walk the Line is like this as well, are more deeply emotional movies. Even though they have their moments of fun and humor and wit and all that stuff, at their heart, they're really great human stories. And I didn't really feel the human aspect of this movie. It really felt like he was trying his best to make somebody else's movie. And the thing is, he's a good director, so he largely does a good job. But I think that's what was missing for me. It just felt like there was something missing, and that's got to be it. And it also doesn't help that the scenes of dialogue in between the action set pieces, because yeah, there are so many action set pieces in this film, especially in the first two acts, but a lot of the dialogue in between is just kind of dull. Like everything in between the action is just dull. At least to me it was. I just never found myself too entertained by it, too intrigued by it, or anything like that. And that was an underrated thing about Spielberg's movies is that, yeah, you were there for the action and his blockbusters, but the stuff in between was really good. Like, he's got some iconic lines and scenes in his filmography that are not in these big action moments or in the climax of his films. But regardless, I still thought this movie was pretty solid for the first two acts where I was like, okay, this is one that I'll walk away saying it was pretty good. It just didn't really feel like it needed to be made. And I saw somebody say, well, what movie needs to be made? And I just thought, well, in this case, you're talking about a sequel to a franchise that has sort of ended twice already. So that's kind of the case where you can say, does this need to be made? 
And at this point, I was going to say this is a pretty solid movie, but I don't think it really justified its existence. Like it was good enough where you can't be mad at it, but it wasn't good enough where it was, wow, I'm so glad they made this. But then the third act of this movie hits, and I'm going to be honest, I've seen a lot of people talking about how much they love this movie, because I mentioned the critics' scores were not good when they first screened this movie, and it's kind of mixed right now in critical reception, but the audience, the general audience, is mostly liking the movie, and a lot of friends that I have that are seeing it are saying how good it is, and how they don't understand why critics were mixed on it, how much they love the movie, And I feel like the lone man in the room that's just like, wow, I did not like this movie. And it's because the third act I thought was not good. I thought they completely jumped the shark. Because everything leading up to that, it feels like an Indiana Jones movie. And then it kind of just goes a little too far. And it not only goes too far, I'm fine if it went in this place for like five minutes, but it's a whole 10, 15 minute climax in this place that the movie takes you. And it just didn't feel right to me at all. It did not feel like an Indiana Jones movie at that point. I was like, what am I watching? I remember people were upset at Kingdom of the Crystal Skull because there were aliens at the end of the movie. And someone had said, well, even if it was aliens, they shouldn't have shown the aliens. But I'll just say, I think if you have a problem with them showing aliens at the end of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I am very curious of how you felt about the third act of this movie. Because I never had an issue with the aliens thing in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It's very brief. To my recollection, you see them for a few seconds and that's about it. And I thought it kind of fit the movie at that point. Like what it had built up to, it made sense. And a lot of these indie movies, you usually see something crazy in the third act when they finally find this artifact or they finally open up this Pandora's box, basically. But this is one where I thought that it goes a little bit further than any of the other movies did and longer. And it just got to a point where I said, okay, what am I watching here? And it kind of just took me out of the movie. It pains me to say it too, because at that point, I was at least going to say, yeah, this is okay. I just don't really care for it. Almost like Ghostbusters Afterlife, for example. I mentioned that earlier, where I said, everyone's getting a legacy sequel. There was Ghostbusters Afterlife, which I thought was perfectly okay, but it's one that I never plan on watching again. Because I'm like, okay, well, I like the original Ghostbusters, and even the second one's okay. But Ghostbusters Afterlife, it just felt unnecessary, and I just didn't really love it. So I was never, ever going to rewatch it. And that was how I felt about this one for the first two acts, where I said, okay, they're trying to show reverence to the original Indiana Jones movies, which I appreciate. They're trying to capture some of that magic, but I felt like I was going to walk away saying, yeah, it's all right. Until this third act where it just took me out of the movie. Didn't like it. I thought it was bad. And there's really no way for me to explain it without spoiling it. So yeah, I'll just say I didn't like the third act of this film. And it killed it overall for me. Where I walked away saying that was not a very good movie. Like it went from being an okay to pretty good movie. Somewhere in that range in the 6.5 to 7.5 out of 10 range. To I'll just say a lower rating because I try not to assign numerical value to these movies over my podcast, because I don't like you guys to hear it and then be like, oh, Caleb said this is a two-star movie, so therefore I'm not going to see it. I'd rather you guys just hear, oh, Caleb didn't like it, but he didn't like it because of this, so maybe I'll like it. Or yeah, Caleb liked it, but he liked it because of this, so I don't know if this is going to be for me. But if I just assign a star rating or numerical value to the movie, I feel like it kind of undercuts everything else I'm saying in some ways. 
because there might be a movie that I give a not so kind review to. Well, I'll rant about how much I didn't like it, and then I'll give a star rating that's actually an okay star rating, and someone might say, well, what's up with that? And it's because I'll say, well, the movie's mostly well-made. I just really didn't like it, and that's the reason for the star rating, which there are plenty of movies like that, that on my letterbox, I'll give them like three stars, or at worst, like 2.5, but I recognize that they're really well-made movies, and they're mostly well-acted. I just didn't really care for where the story went or how it played out. And maybe there's some stylistic things that I don't care for. So I always try to rate movies based on their overall quality and not necessarily how much I enjoy them. Whereas on this podcast, I try to talk about them as far as how much I enjoy them. And I'll talk about some of the technical aspects that I appreciate or don't appreciate. But I want it more to be like, here's why I liked it, as opposed to here's what's good about it from a technical point of view and only that. Whereas my star ratings are typically more based on the actual technical quality, if that makes sense. But yeah, I'll just say that I wasn't really won over by the advertising for this movie. It never looked that good, but I still wanted to give it a shot. And in the first 20 minutes of the movie, I said, you know, this kind of feels pretty Indiana Jones-esque to me. And then it kept going and it kept feeling more or less like an Indiana Jones movie. They even tried to capture the same visual style but nobody can quite do it like Spielberg. You can never make your movie look like a Spielberg movie because nobody does it like Spielberg. But regardless, I give them points for trying. And at some points, I would say, yeah, this kind of looks like it could fit in with the other indie movies. And then the score is done by John Williams, who, bless his heart, he was a great composer for his time. And not to say he's a bad composer now, but at the same time, I was thinking, How much did he actually do with this movie? Because it's almost like the sequel trilogy where almost all the music in the sequel trilogy sounds like stuff that you've already heard. And that was kind of the case in this one where I said, yeah, it's kind of just sounds like stuff I already heard in the other Indiana Jones movies, which fair, I guess, that he has the same motifs, but it didn't feel like there was anything new. I don't think John Williams is really doing anything new at all these days with his music. I think he's mostly just composing stuff for franchises he's already worked for, and he's kind of rehashing the same songs, which is fine. He's got some iconic themes, so it works for this movie, but he didn't do anything Oscar-worthy is what I'm saying. He didn't reinvent the wheel or anything like that. He just did his Indiana Jones music from the other movies, basically. I don't remember hearing anything new. Now, something I almost forgot about, but I mentioned that there was the kid in this movie, and I mentioned how much I hate kid actors because I think a lot of them really stink, and this one is no exception. The kid's name in the movie is Teddy. I almost feel bad saying his actor's name just because, you know, he's a kid, so I shouldn't be critiquing him that heavy. And when I say kid, he's probably an older teenager just playing a younger guy. Okay, you know, he's a kid. He's a kid. I just looked. He's like 14. At least when this movie was shot, he was like 14. But yeah, I thought his acting was largely very bad. Like he would always say his lines really loud, not in like a shouting voice, but just like louder than you would normally be saying the lines where it's something like, why are we going there? He'd be like, why are we going there? I'm like, dude, that's not how you ask the question. It's like he was just reading his lines and just trying to belt them out like he was on stage. It's like, hey man, there are microphones all around you picking up what you're saying. I promise you, you do not need to say this any louder. And I don't know why it happens so much with these kid actors. These directors are afraid to give them criticism. I'm telling you, dude, sometimes these kid actors, they're kids. They don't know what they're doing. I think you can get good performances out of them. I just watched Spielberg's The Fablemans last year. 
plenty of kid actors in that movie. He gets some stellar performances in that film. And that's actually a staple of Spielberg's career are the child actor performances that he gets in his movies. Very few people can do it like him. And so maybe that's part of it is that this kid not being very good compared to how Spielberg's other movies are with the kids in his movies, again, was one of those examples of, yeah, nobody does it like Spielberg. But yeah, by the end of this film, I kind of just sat there thinking, what was the point of this? Because I saw people say, oh, it's a good send off to his character, but it kind of immediately undercuts everything that happens in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull because right away it establishes in this one that him and whoever his wife was by the end of Crystal Skull, I don't remember her name, but they're no longer married. They're separated. I thought, okay, well, that was a big part of his character arc. And they do something more with that by the end of this one, but that's one of my least favorite things when they do a sequel is where like, hey, remember everything that was built up in the last movie? Yeah, forget about that. It actually ended up not working out off screen. And then they fill you in on some details later. But yeah, I just didn't really love that. It didn't really work for me. They gave a reason for it and it made sense. But I thought, yeah, but you're going to do that in the movie after Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? which we thought was the last one. And then you made another one like 15 years later. And then you said, yeah, forget what happened at the end of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Like it happened, but we're going to immediately undercut it with this. But this movie does attempt to have an emotional ending. It just didn't really land with me because by the end, I was so checked out from the third act that had preceded it that in these closing minutes, I just thought, okay, wrap it up. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. Also, randomly, my theater was so freaking hot, dude. It's my local AMC, the IMAX. I swear they have been keeping the temperature at like 80, 82 degrees there, which, hey, if you do that in your own home, go ahead. But when you are in a movie theater, that is way too hot. Even 80 degrees is way too hot for a theater. Heck, even like 76 or something would be too hot for a theater because you got a bunch of people crammed in there, man. So yeah, it just felt hot and stuffy the entire time. And I'm thinking, okay, this is a two and a half hour movie and I'm uncomfortable. So maybe that affected my viewing experience a little bit, but I think I stand by what I said, that this movie is largely decent for the first two acts, mostly because it's a good director trying to replicate what a great director did. So it's still kind of a step down. It's a little bit of a watered down Indiana Jones story. The third act, I think, just fails miserably at what it attempts to do. And it killed the movie overall for me. So yeah, unfortunately, this movie was just not one for me. I wasn't a huge fan of it personally. I'm seeing a lot of my friends liking it and enjoying it. So if you're one of those people, then I'm happy for you. I'm glad you got an Indiana Jones movie that you love this year. Unfortunately, that was just not the case for me. Anyway, that is all I have got for today. Later this week, I will be talking about Wes Anderson's new movie, Asteroid City. So stay tuned for that. If you are not already, then please give me a follow on whatever your preferred streaming platform is, meaning whatever you are listening on right now. And also give me a follow on Instagram under the username at vitamin C pod. So you can get all the latest updates on this podcast and the movie business in general. But thank you again for tuning in today. You will hear from me later this week.